we have Elaine Filter back with us today from Africa, and is that not amazing or what? I asked Elaine if there was a, a passage that spoke to her time there and, and, and her journey with God there that, that I could share with you today. And it seemed without hesitation, Psalm 50. And, and I'm going to read it to you today. I was asking her, why, why Psalm 50? What, what is it about this psalm that really grabbed you? And she said it was the first point of interface, the first scripture that interfaced with me in Africa. She said she was walking and she was going through the hills and she heard in the distance the cowbells ringing and the children laughing as they were leading their animals to water or to pasture or whatever it might have been. And she said it was like this, this moment where Hearing this, the, these words of Psalm 50 came crashing in, and, and I want to read it to you today to, to ground us in that, but also as a time of confession for us, because within these same words is a powerful indictment on God's people and a call to repentance from it. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, from Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you. For your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pen. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of gold? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Call upon him with me this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name.
Call upon me, and I will answer you. Call upon me, and I will deliver you. The God of this world sent his son to die for you. And by his sacrifice, you are forgiven. Guys, good to see you today. Before you take a seat this morning, why don't you just say hi to someone? And uh, yeah, that's good. You know, normally you say hi a lot longer than that. And uh, yeah, you're killing us here. Killing us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Elaine, it is so good to have you back. I've got to imagine that this just feels like home today. I mean, reminiscent to the weather in Africa, you know? Yeah. Um, I've been freezing for four weeks. (laughs) It's so good to have you here today. And listen, um, everyone, this is Elaine Filter. And um, Elaine has been just this amazing woman who's been with us here at Fellowship of Faith for, my gosh, how long now? It's going on four years. So about four years, and it was about a year and a half or maybe a year ago that God just kind of gripped her and, and got a hold of her life in a different kind of way and, and sent her off to Kenya. And um, Elaine, I don't want to take for granted that everyone knows you here. I mean, you know, many of us know you well and, and have come to, to know about you and your ministry, but there's going to be a lot of us here today that this might be the first time meeting you or, or, or it's just a familiar face at best. Could you maybe just introduce um, yourself again to the folks? But, but more than that, share your story just very briefly and um, what you're doing now out there in Kenya. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for inviting me to, to be here and be part of your worship today. Um, I am originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, born and raised, and God put education in Africa in my heart when I was really young. My mom likes to tell the stories about me lining up my dollies and taking away their recess, and that's how she knew I was going to be a teacher. And in middle school and high school, I had the opportunity to engage with some ministries to Africa, and I really just continued to develop a heart for that country. But I would say that the urgency of that um, drawing kind of um, died away as you, you get into your career. I was here teaching at Faith Lutheran High School for seven years, and it wasn't until I was actually in this room and Lynn Muffelman was promoting our Kenya ministry team that we have here, that that urgency reawoke. And so I joined the ministry team, and I learned about an organization that we partner with here called Oasis for Orphans. I went home from my first meeting, and I got on the computer, and I found out that they had an education team going that next summer. So this would have been like October, uh, and the following August, they had a trip going. And so almost as soon as I signed up for that trip to go, my life completely fell apart. (laughs) And I entered into just a real season of healing, uh, which is always predicated upon an awareness of how broken I was. And I was very broken um, from a lot of things and feel very... Um, blessed and grateful and free um, that God walked with me through a very intense season of healing to prepare me to go over to Africa. And I was sitting, doing some Jesus time, doing some um, preparation to go just on this short-term two-week trip. It was uh, July, so it was the month before, and so it was warm. You remember that, when it gets warm here? 
And I was sitting on my front porch, and I had my cup of coffee, and the birds were singing. And in my spirit, I hear Jesus say, will you go to Africa? And I said, because I'm smart, I said, yeah, I am going next month for two weeks. Do you not know me? Where have you been? And it was instantaneous, guys. He said, no, will you sell everything, and will you move there? Um, I had my laundry list of reasons for why I couldn't go, and he just crossed them off one by one. My house sold in 60 hours for full asking price. I was immediately homeless and immediately taken in by some wonderful, amazing people who are now my family at this church. And um, this community was my very first missions partner. I, I live solely based on financial partnerships that I make and that they make with me. So this, this community was my very first financial partner. I am um, over 100% funded, um, which is crazy. Missionaries operate at like 85% funded. That's when we start high-fiving each other. So to be 100% funded is like, oh, guess I can't go home yet. And uh, yeah, it's just been amazing. So I, I moved over there full-time in September. Um, I was there for the month of June last year, but I moved over September 2017. Um, and basically what I did for my first six months is I just learned how to live in a third-world country. Um, I got to know some kids at one of our sites and totally fell in love. I'm going to try to not be distracted by their beautiful faces because I miss them so much. Um, I'm learning a lot about the Kenyan education system uh, and just jumping in to try to help our kids catch up. Um, Kenya is on Africa's uh, six countries of high burden for HIV AIDS. And so the county that we work in, 28% of the adult population is infected. Um, so we have many children who have been orphaned by um, the AIDS virus um, and, and have and are living with the AIDS virus. But we also have kids who are orphaned from malaria. We have kids who are orphaned from vehicular accidents. We have kids whose parents are very mentally unhealthy. Uh, we have parents whose kids are incarcerated, um, and they all need love, and they all um, need a good education. And so I am just super excited about what we're doing there, and we have a lot of momentum, and it's really exciting. So, so you're with Oasis for Orphans, and it's this ministry in southwest Kenya. And obviously it's working among orphans, but, but could you paint the picture even a little more specifically? We, we heard the plight, but what, what are you specifically and Oasis doing there on the ground? Yeah, so we serve six counties in southwest Kenya, and in that area there are 110,000 orphans. And so right now we have two... Um, separate sites in two different counties um, where we give full-time care to um, just under 200 kids full-time care. Um, they live with us, they eat with us, we clothe them, we do medical care, we do spiritual formation, I mean, like we're raising kids, right? Like that's what you do when you work in a children's home, you're raising kids. We also are expanding our guardianship program, which we're very excited about because um, Kenyans, Africans, don't need some little white girl from America to teach them how to love kids and raise kids. 
they don't need that. That's not what I'm there to do. And so there are situations that are very emotionally um, safe for our kids to stay with grandparents or aunts and uncles. And so we are trying to grow what we're calling our guardian care program so that we can help them uh, financially, we can help them with school fees, but they can stay at home with their family because that's best. Oh, okay, so I gotta, like, I gotta ask because there, there's some of us here who have like two kids and that's enough. Uh, or, or like, you know, we have grandkids for like the day and we can't wait to send them back to their parents, right? You know, at the end of the day, we love them. But, but the thought of like living with 200 orphans, um, how? There's only 72 how? at my site. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that makes it so much better, I suppose. But, 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 but legitimately, I mean, it's like, how does that even work? Yeah, so the site that I work at is called, so we're Oasis for Orphan, but the name of our specific children's home is the shelter, and we have beds for 72 kids, and uh, they are there doing family-style orphan care, which means it feels like a neighborhood. When you walk onto this beautiful compound, you can kind of see it in that picture right there. All right, it'll come again. Um, (laughs) There are six individual houses that uh, home 12 kids and two mamas. So these are our employees and their job title is mama. And so each house has has two mamas and six kids. We have social workers. Um, I'm the educational coordinator, for whatever that means. And there's a site director and a child development officer who are two Americans working with me there as well. We have a cook, um, we have a cook's assistant, there's a lot of potato chopping that happens there. And the kids help. They do chores. They weed. They garden. So that's how it actually happens. Now, now I know that you know, you're obviously an educator by background. You have your master's in education. You were teaching here stateside for a number of years. But, but I know that when we were talking, you shared with me that there were some unexpected ministry opportunities that kind of came up. And I don't know if that came out of left field or, or, or what, but could you just kind of maybe share with us a little bit of that? Yeah, you know, I I received this call to go and to work with orphans, and you get there, though, and you're you're kind of working all the time, because no matter where you go, you're still on another continent, and you're still in a third world country, Um, and so in order to do that successfully with some realm of like emotional health, um, you make as many connections you can. And when you can make connections to other Americans who are working there, it is just life-giving. And so we have a women's Bible study that meets on Friday morning, which I am just always blown away by. Because I'm like, I didn't get that in Northern Illinois, a Friday women's Bible study. It's great. And uh, then we started a basically a home church for the missionaries that are serving in Megory. And so we get together on Sunday morning and we do a potluck and we um, sing and we pray and we will stream sometimes an FOF service um, or another sermon. And so uh, from those relationships, you just get to walk with people through the really hard things that happen in life, right? Because we're in Africa, but there's still life. And it might get a little slightly differently complicated than your lives get here. And so, you know, I got to meet a friend for coffee. We didn't have coffee, but we called it coffee. And we got back to our apartments and we're like, oh, my gosh, we just met for coffee. 
those are the things you think you'll never get to do again when you're living in a third world country. And so um, they're just really awesome ways that God has allowed me to not just work with kids, which I love, but to work with our staff, who's amazing, and to work with these other missionaries who are amazing as well, and uh, just to continue to do life with people. And I didn't know that that was going to happen. I want to pick up on something you said, too, the, the, the complications, because I think many of us can maybe imagine or project, but like I know in your time there, you've, you, you've dealt with political insurrection and coup. You've personally had malaria already to a very life-threatening edge. I mean, you, some of the water issues. You, can you just kind of paint a picture for us today of what some of those complications, struggles, challenges that you're facing look like? Yeah. Um, so I, I did. When, I, when we got there... Uh, they, I, I chose to leave in September. I was told to leave in September because they were having a political election in August, and we felt uh, we will just give everybody a month to like get it together, and then we'll go back, and it'll be fine. And then two days before I left, the Supreme Court of Kenya invalidated that election. <laughs> and we were like, cool. We don't know what this means. Uh, and so we decided to go back anyways, thinking that all of the stipulations that the Supreme Court had laid out for moving forward from this invalidated election would take months and months and months and months and months before they got together to have another election. And it took a month and a half. So we were just there for the second election. And we were hiding in Nairobi. Um, and it was horrible. It was horrible. We were getting reports of what was happening in our village, and it was not at all lining up with what was happening on TV. And um, we didn't want to stay in Migori and make our area a target, but we felt like we were abandoning people by leaving, and it was it was horrible. So um, Kenya is based in, in Africa in general. I think it's it's okay to say that. Uh, it's a continent of tribes, and so they identify more strongly with their tribe than they do with their nation, and so it's constantly a fight for which tribe gets to be in power. And right now, Kenya's two, they've like made coalitions, I won't make this long, they've made coalitions, and so it's like 51% and 49% split in the country, and um, Two years, five years away from civil war, we thought we were sitting in it for a little bit. So the first three months were just trying to figure out how do we stay safe, how do we keep our kids safe, and then we just came to the place of saying, hey, we're trying to raise kids, so we got to go back and we got to just raise our kids and uh, and trust. Uh, and so we just kind of learned to live with a level of uncertainty, a level of. I won't even really call it fear. I know people back here were really afraid for me, um, and I've told them, good, you were afraid for me so that I didn't have to be. You prayed for me so that I could just do what God was asking me to do with peace. And um, so we still, I mean, I hear them protesting from my house sometimes, and it just is. So I have no idea where that's going to go. Um, I got malaria 
don't super recommend it. Yeah, good times, huh? Um, yeah, it was, it comes on so fast, oh my gosh. And then I dehydrated within 48 hours and um, the day that I got malaria, they were protesting in town and so I couldn't go to the clinic. And thankfully we had malaria meds at the site because if you're in Africa, you're gonna, like if you live there long enough, you're gonna get malaria. It just, it's just part of life. And so um, I dehydrated so fast that I lost feeling in my fingers and my toes. And my friend who's a medical missionary was like, yeah, get to the clinic. So I did. And they had an American team in and all of the doctors, the American doctors are standing in the hallway Googling, like, how do you cure malaria? <laughs> so the best place to get malaria really is Africa because they know what to do. And uh, I just got chocked full of saline solution and but it I mean it knocked me on my butt it was difficult but they say you know malaria and love the first time's the hardest <laughs> so I look forward to not ever being that sick again with malaria yeah um no, no, bring it home. You, you got to share the water situation. Um, you, you know, we're, we're, we're in more water now than we care to be in. And um, thankfully they are too. Um, our, our summer is, we're like three degrees south of the equator. And so um, our seasons, that we do have slight seasons, are reversed from here. So in February, we were about three weeks without water. Um, we collect rain. We call it the rain harvest. So we have gutter systems that collect rain. And we are in a town that's big enough to have um, city water. Uh, and that ran out first. Um, and then we were pumping in water from the river into our rain harvest, which sounds like it's cool, but I've seen what they do in that river. And what do they do in that river? They do everything. They wash their motorcycles, they, they, they water their cows, their cows do other things that cows do. They themselves bathe. Um, so when you walk, it, when the water's low enough, there's just scum everywhere on the rock bed of the, uh, yeah, it's just bleak. It's bad. So, um, so there is this thing called water guard and you just dump it and it's supposed to kill all the bacteria. Uh, so you just don't think about it too much. Um, but, I, I mean, you need water. I, I would rather not have electricity, which we also face often, that our electricity is out. But not having water is miserable. Um, so then water came back because the short rain started. But the villagers north of us heard that the villagers south of us were selling uh, river water and making money off of it. And so the villagers north decided they wanted to do that too, and they dug up our pipes and broke them. It was just selling city water. <laughs> and so there were three compounds that remained without water, and we were one of the lucky compounds that still didn't have water. Um, so there's only so much wet wiping you can do in this world, and I've found that threshold. <laughs> just is. The kids don't care, thankfully. All right, all right so I'm, I'm thinking of some of this, and... Uh... 28% AIDS rate, HIV rate, you, you mentioned earlier, the, 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 the political insurrection, and you told me so much about like, the violence in the streets, people being put in flaming tires, and, and just, just sick, horrific stuff. You have the malaria issues, the poverty issues, 110,000 orphans in six counties. I mean, it, it just kind of keeps compiling, right? We, we've been doing this series here called Why? 
And, and, and the last couple of weeks in particular, it, it's been kind of those why questions that I think people ask out of, out of those places of heartache and heartbreak. And, and without minimizing any of our struggles here stateside, it, it's, it's a very different playing field. Um, what are the why questions you see the Kenyans asking? And, and before you answer that, I want to throw the second question out as well. What are the why questions you're asking while you're serving there? So I've thought about this um, a lot this past week. And asking why is not really a cornerstone of Kenyan culture. Uh, sometimes it's called poverty mindset. And it's basically just the name that's given to literally living in the moment. Right, And so if you have money today, you spend it today. If you have a TV today, you can just be as rough as you want to with it because I'm not even thinking about tomorrow. There's no, I mean, there's no budgeting. There's no um, saving medicine for, um, you know, my dose that I need next week because my neighbor's sick now, so I'm just going to give them my kids medicine now. Uh, and there are some really beautiful things in that. Um, that I get to see and observe, um, but there can be really horrible things in that too and not ever thinking about tomorrow or planning for tomorrow. Um, but I do see Kenyans asking, why is our government so corrupt? Why do the people who are supposed to care about us not care about us? Uh, and I, I don't... No, so then, right, this is just my projection. Um, I don't know that anyone has ever vocalized this to me, but I, I think if, if that was part of what they did in their culture, they would say, why are we working so hard and getting nowhere? Because hmm. they work so hard. I mean, they're not a perfect people. They're like us, you know. I have to say all the time, because all the white people, they meet a lot of them are missionaries, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not that great. And also, we are not actually a country of missionaries. Um, but yeah, they, they work. I, I know some people who work really hard, and they're still in just really desperate situations. Um, and then I think my why questions, you know, when you find out how much energy, time, resources have been poured in to Africa, I ask God, why is it still this way? Why is it still this way? Why did you bring me here? Can I really do anything in the face of this? And I've got some little kids who are obviously uh, physically abused at home. And so every time um, you raise your hand in any way, uh, they flinch, right? Which I have just sat on my crouch, couch and cried, thinking, who has hurt this beautiful child enough that they would flinch just when I raise my hand. And so I just make it a practice. I get on my knees, I get right into their face, and I say, Isaac, Mommy Lane is never going to hit you. And I just keep doing it. As many times as he will need to hear that as he grows up, I will just keep telling him, Mommy Lane will never hit you. But then I sit with that, why? Why do these beautiful children and our beautiful children here in the US. And why do these things happen? And what can I do in the face of it? You know, on the flip side, I think there's a tendency 
for, for many people to think that the condition of life equates to despair questions with why and a prosperity of life equates to joy. But I think you can ask any average American and you realize that while that veneer might be there, it's really not the case. You, you've shared with me you know, so much of the joy that you see among the Kenyans, the joy that you're experiencing in, in your own um, Oasis community there and, and, and with people that you're meeting and maybe more significantly, um, ways that God has been working powerfully despite some of the struggles and uh, the joy that's coming from there. Can you maybe share some about that? Maybe specific case, uh, you, you know, a kid or, or two that you know, or just generally speaking, just kind of take it how you want. Yeah, um, yeah I, I hope that even just looking at these pictures, you can see the joy in their faces. And so even though um, they are all traumatized kids because they're orphans, um, they Sorry, I see a picture and I remember what was happening when it was taken. Um, they are full of joy and full of life. And so um, there's one little girl, uh, her name is Faith, and she uh, came from a village that practices early marriage. And by early marriage, I mean like six and seven years old, being married to like 32-year-olds. And uh, so her, her family is gone, and there was really no one to protect her from this future. And so um, she's one of our kids, and she did not speak a lot of English when I first met her. And so uh, she's like a violent kid. She fights. Um, and so it's hard to know when you don't have language skills, like, why exactly is this happening? And so as her English has improved, one of the things that I got to do my first six months is to institute an English language acquisition program. So we're teaching them English, okay? And as her English has improved, there's a marketed difference in her behavior. And she comes off the bus from school, and she's smiling, and her teachers report that she didn't hit anybody at school today. And I know, you know, if you've struggled with stuff with your kids, you realize, like, that's a huge deal. She's able to use her words. She's able to make connections. And, um, and she's still kind of an edgy kid. Like, she's been through stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but the change in her is just pretty dramatic. Um, so... So that's Faith. Um, and then there's a little boy, Peter. He was actually just in that last picture. And he um, was probably another one that I just, I didn't connect with right away. He is probably 12 years old. We're not sure how old our kids are. Um, guardians think that we want younger kids, so they'll frequently lie. Also, I think they sincerely don't know because that's not as important to them as it is to us, like knowing our birthday. Um, so anyways, Peter's probably about 12, right? So he's doing some hormonal things and whatever, um, kind of being a snot sometimes. Um, but again, getting him some English, he literally is one of the sweetest kids I've ever met. And he did not want to go to this extra English class. And now whenever my office is open, he is in there, he's reading a book out loud to himself, practicing his fluency. He's spelling stuff out with the magnets on my um, filing cabinet. And he is helping the little kids complete their tasks because as you know, Dave alluded to before, there are 72 kids. And sometimes they like to all see if they can fit in my office. 
and that gets overwhelming, and then it's time to go home, and so I'm trying to shout out directions over the din, and um, Peter is the kid that's actually helping his little brothers put their books back, and, and so uh, just seeing his gentleness, um, seeing his leadership, uh, just seeing his sweet spirit is such a blessing. It brings me such joy, and I know it brings joy to his uh, his guardian family and the people in his house, too. So you're home on a leave right now, and if all goes according to plan, you, you're going to be going back early May or late April, it sounds, um, next season. Yeah, super excited about what's next. So when I, I go back, a um, couple of things are going to get my attention. First, I'm going to be really intentional with identifying our older kids who are behind and working with them one-on-one, -on -one, working with them in small groups to get them caught up. And the other piece that I'm really excited about is that we are going to start homeschooling all of our kids. So right now at the shelter, we're sending all of the kids to a private academy, and they are absolutely doing the best that they can. Um, and we just think that one of the things that we can do as Americans is we can bring what this country has learned about education. And so uh, I'm going to be starting a homeschool program, rolling that out. So by 2019, all of our kids will be homeschooled. We'll be able to invite kids, guardian kids from the community to be a part of it. Um, I'm going to get to mentor teachers, which is something that I'm really passionate about. And so uh, these kids are so smart. And I, that might sound horrible to say that that was a surprise to me, but I didn't know what to expect. I mean, let me just be vulnerable. I didn't, I didn't know what to expect going over, working with kids who might have cognitive delays. They didn't get proper nutrition. They're living on the street, on and on and on. And so getting to see them succeed so quickly just with our English program makes me really excited for what they're going to be able to do when we can really give them um, some good educational opportunities and then what they're going to be able to do for that country, to have, to have kids and adults who can think, you know, who can problem solve. Um, I'm really excited for the whole area. Oh, cool. Very cool. I'd keep you up here all day, hearing, hearing stories about Kenya and talking. Um, and this time always goes so quick together. You know, for time's sake, we're going to land the plane um, here, but I'm fully convinced that you're not the only one in this room that God has placed a call on, that, that every single person here has a, a, a calling from God, and it might not be to Africa. And, and I don't think that that calling is just to support you either. That, that may be a part of it, but, but, but that there's something God wants each and every one of us to be doing in some kind of context that is going to be scary, that is going to be out of the comfort zone. You've done what I think most of us at best dream of doing, and many more of us probably fear ever having to come face to face with. You know, whether, whether someone's call here is small or large, um, seemingly significant or insignificant, we want to hear from you. How do you discern? What advice do you give to us? Um, Give us kind of some direction in our own walk with God. Yeah, so I, I have two thoughts about this. Um, and the first is say yes. 
whatever God is asking you to, to say yes. It's, it's about a relationship with Jesus, and the way you, you do that is you spend time together, right? And then you say yes to each other. Um, and the, the call to go to Africa was not the first thing that God asked me to do. It started really, um, I mean, maybe we can say small, right? Uh, he asked me to spend more time with him. And so by saying yes to what to human beings feels like small things, it gets you ready to say yes to what to human beings feels like big things. Um, but say yes. Build that trust uh, with God. Uh, and that kind of leads me to my second thing is that God is trustworthy. I, I made it almost, I mean, I told you that I, I, my life kind of fell apart while I got this call. Um, and... It was almost like I chose to just put God through the experiment. All right, God, you say that you want to give me a full and abundant life and you want to bring healing and you want to do these things? I guess I'll give you a shot in really big ways. The promises are true and he is trustworthy. And, it, you know, I mean, you hear this. It doesn't look like what you think it's going to look like. Um, but he is trustworthy. So put him through the experiment. Say yes. Uh, there's... You know, there are days that I wake up and I say, God, why did you put this need for adventure in my heart? It's a part of who I am. And some days I wake up and I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, it's harder for me to leave this time than it was in September. I'm much more aware of what I'm missing out on. Um, but God is good and I've said yes to this and he hasn't asked me to do anything else. So I'm going to keep saying yes to him and he's going to keep saying yes to me. And he's going to give me that full and abundant and free life that he's promised because he's been doing it for my whole life. And that's what he wants to do for you too. That's the invitation. Thanks so much for sharing today. Really, uh, just, just incredible to have you here. And just thanks for putting your heart on the line and give us an insight into not only into your world right now, but into your soul. Can we just give Elaine a hand for... This morning. Thank you. And I, I, I'm right here, but but you know we're all here, um, you know, surrounded with you. We just love to pray over you, if that's okay. Let's pray, guys. God in heaven, thank you for for Elaine, what you've stirred in her heart, the 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 radical, outlandish call and idea you planted in her brain. Thank you, God that you never stop nagging. You never let her go. We thank you, God, that you've brought her through war, corruption, that you've brought her through poverty and disease, that you've brought her through drought, through sickness, and that day by day as she struggles with, with, with a love and a heartbreak for these kids, that you show yourself to each of us, God, each of us, facing our own set of challenges. Show yourself, and, and may we always be open and receptive to your call. So as Elaine goes back to season two, surround her, send opportunity her way. Put your angelic force of protection around her village. And God, through good times and bad, through, through joy and through suffering, may she and may these children learn to cry out, blessed be your name. God, we pray. Amen.